0: Welcome to the Jesus Name News Podcast. I got Derek here with me. I'm Larry. And we are here this week continuing our discussion on the church of half-truth. And this week we're discussing Martin Luther's theology of grace through faith and what Paul says about it here. But before we get into that, let's get a word from our sponsors.
1: Yeah, so where we start out today is Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10, and it goes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And You know, to start out, I like to always go with definitions. You know, that's the, I guess that's the teacher in me. So, defined simply, grace in Christian belief is the free and unmerited favor of God uh, as manifested in salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Essentially, this is how God deals with the human race when it comes down to it. Uh, showing favor to the unfavorable, acceptance to the unacceptable, love to the unlovable. You know, him bestowing his favor and blessings upon undeserving mankind. But then Martin Luther enters the conversation somewhere along the 16th century, right? And you get this idea that we want to understand the idea of grace and the fullness of Jesus. It, because this if this is how God deals with the human race, well, Jesus would be the fullness of that, right? And really, I wanted to start out with Luke chapter 19 and talk about Zacchaeus. And I'm, I'm not going to read any of it. I feel like we all know Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Yeah, I feel like we all know that. I was going to bring the Sunday school into this podcast. To be honest, it is one of the buried memory. That is one of the first memories I have of church. That song. (laughs) That and Father Abraham. That that
0: TikTok thing going around where they do the hand thing with uh, the Italian song in the background. I'm, I'm seeing it.
1: Yeah. But he encounters Zacchaeus, who is the Bible describes him as a chief tax collector but also describes him as very rich he his profession has not as as luke said made him no little business uh i, I just love how we throw that in there but Zacchaeus i find it interesting that like they're
0: they're very tax collectors very synonymous all the time with being well off and being you know stealing money from people but yet Luke decided to point out that not only was he a chief tax collector, but in case it wasn't clear, he was rich. Absolutely. Like, I'm Uh, just like, I feel like these are synonymous, or maybe it's just because they always are now. Maybe back then it wasn't so synonymous.
1: Well, to me, it's, it's, you know, you got to understand who Luke is. Luke was probably very learned in Greek. I mean, uh, if you read some sources, he may have even been a Gentile himself. So his spin on things would be toward trying to show, you know, the Jews is kind of responsible for the death of Jesus versus trying to show the Jews hand or, you know, the Romans hand in the death. Uh, But his idea was Zacchaeus to me. I'm not sure if it was synonymous. I'm not sure you know, why he felt the need to say that. But Zacchaeus, Luke makes clear, is a short man. He couldn't see over Mm -hmm. the crowd. And so he ran ahead of the crowd and climbed up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. But uh, yeah, sycamore tree just... you just
0: imagine like thousands of years of history talk about you? And the only thing they really note about you... Is that you're a short
1: dude? I mean, uh, to me, it seems <laughs> like the short ones are the guys that always have the major issue.
0: <laughs> I know. It's just, it's so funny because it's like, you know, thinking about it, poor Zacchaeus, like, we're still talking about the dude 2,000 years later, but it's not his faith and it's not, it's not all that other stuff that we really talk about. Just... All of that stuff is only talked about in light of his shortness. Yep. And it's not even impressive shortness. like it's just normal, unimportant short guy shortness.
1: It's relative shortness and yeah. short not not dwarf shortness. yeah, it's
0: not like he's he's like even unusually or special short. no, he's just he's just short,
1: yeah, but he wants to get a glimpse of hopefully just seeing this man, Jesus, who was preaching and performing miracles. And I did a little background, this isn't in the notes at all, but I did a little background on Zacchaeus to try and figure out who exactly he was. And what I came up with is that Zacchaeus, some believe, was impacted by John the Baptist. And the teachings of John the Baptist led him to give away half of his stuff led him to, you know, if he had defrauded anyone, to make sure he repaid that person. And so that's where, you know, when Jesus talks to him, he says, well, I give half my stuff to the poor and all that. But it's well understood how tax collectors are treated during this time, uh, especially those who were Jewish tax collectors, uh, they were viewed as traitors of the promise of God, and they were ostracized by society. Just a little side note here: I I love how the Chosen portrays it because I, it is one of the most accurate portrayals ever uh, with Matthew and the way he's treated as a tax collector. Uh, we really need to figure out how to get them to sponsor us. I love the Chosen. Uh, yeah, Matthew. Matthew is my ulti- one of my favorite characters that I've ever seen. Uh, in, in media. But either way, a man ostracized and hated by his own people just for his occupation, just wanted to see Jesus. He hoped to see Jesus, much less speak with him. And the ESV reads, as Jesus comes to this place, he looked up. So the Savior had to stop and look up at Zacchaeus. And, and that's just a, that's, you can spin that scripture so many different ways. That's amazing. But without hesitation, it seems that Jesus sees Zacchaeus in that moment of desperation, calls his name and says, I must stay at your house today. And those nearby say, he's going to go be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus tells the Lord, look, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, i restore it fourfold. And it almost seems like Zacchaeus is hearing the crowd. And to justify the presence of a holy man in his house, like Christ, that's what he tells him. He's telling it to Jesus, but hes it's in earshot of the crowd. And it's like the people of Jericho, because this is where this is taking place. The people of Jericho only knew one thing about Zacchaeus that he was a tax collector. And for that, they hated him. They rejected him as a valid member of society. However, what they didn't see was that Zacchaeus was trying to use his position to help the community around him now and to do right. He had a job to do, but he was trying to do it the right way. So Jesus turns to Zacchaeus and says, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. It says, one thing about this is, it says, since he is also a son of Abraham. Jesus points out that Zacchaeus is a Jew. Just because his occupation was something that his peers didn't like, didn't make him any less of an heir to the promise of Abraham and i feel like we forget that in this world you know because we have so many issues that divide us the 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 current state of politics tends to dehumanize the opposing side and then you know yeah. you have much less issues of race poverty education creed etc but we see the parallels to today obviously yeah absolutely
0: I, it's also interesting to me that Jesus responds to this with a version of the parable of the talents elsewhere. Yeah. Like you his know. response is to tell a version of this only in this version, there's 10 servants originally. The law. Yeah. The and law. well, no, originally there's 12, there's 10 servants and um, each servant is given one. Hold on one second. What's up?
1: Help.
0: Yeah, right
1: here. Hi. Do you
0: want to say hi to my friend? Hi. Hi. Hello. What's hey. your name?
1: That's Derek. I'm, I'm
0: Derek. Hi. Hello. Hey, my name is like, Derek, your name? He's the person I do the podcast with. And? Oh, this you lost it. too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, and that's my microphone. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. It helps my sound. So, you girls need to go to bed. Close the door. I love you. Go to bed. I love you. At
1: some point, it's just not salvageable. <laughs> All right. I may keep it in. <laughs> may have right. it as like a blooper, blooper edit. Yeah
0: before we tell the story though let's get a word from our sponsor <laughs> all right but in, so in this version we have Jesus we have Jesus telling about the rich man who's going to go in a far country and then return and he has ten servants and he gives them each an amount right and it yeah. doesn't go it doesn't go through all of the servants right but instead of giving them Talents in response Or amounts of money Equal to what they returned It gives them cities to rule over
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I just I find it really interesting that like Everybody's like Hey this is this evil rich man And Jesus is like hey Let me tell you about You know This rich guy that you would think really is Evil but is actually Kind of just because that's how things Work
1: yeah I mean it it's interesting because Jesus, I feel like, is constantly pushing against these societal norms, yeah, using grace, showing grace and and you know i I think uh, we see the parallels today, but those things that cause us to ostracize and separate from others are the things that Jesus looked past, rich. Poor, leper. Gentile. Gentile. I, I mean, those things that separated us are the things that Jesus said, look, like that's not even in my line of thought. And understanding that is the first step to grace. Because if we read further, it says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And now that that word lost in the Greek is apolume, which means to destroy fully. Literally or figuratively destroy, die, mar, perish. This isn't just a loss like you're a lost sheep that you kind of wandered away from the the, the the herd this is lost as in you were headed down a path of destruction and well, yeah hell, i mean hell. if you look at it from god's
0: perspective right i mean not even getting into our perspective like i don't i don't i don't really want to visualize what hell is like i don't i, I just i don't yeah <laughs> not a fun fun visualization game but thinking about it from god's perspective right god knows everything is everywhere and comes to a place where he has to send these things, these people that he loves to a place where he no longer is. Yep. It's almost like it's called death. Not even so much because the people are dying but because that's what they become
1: from God's yeah. perspective yeah spiritually dead you know that that eternal separation yeah from the creator and you know again the it it's talking about something that is so final it's not talking about you know oh I lost my keys this morning well they're somewhere in your house This is a loss that is, some would say, too far gone. And people would have labeled Zacchaeus as such. So Jesus first looked past Zacchaeus' political occupation and saw him as an heir to Abraham. But then he goes further to say, I'm here to seek and save those who will perish, die, be destroyed, or marred. Because it's grace in and of itself, and I chose the story to demonstrate grace of God in the fullness of Jesus, because it fits that criteria perfectly. There are many others we can talk about. I mean, time would fail us to, to talk about the woman at the well, and you know the, the woman caught in adultery, and it, tons of other stories out there. Zacchaeus, when Jesus said, I must stay at your house, Luke says that he came down and joyfully received him. Why? Because he had finally been shown something that he had never had from his own people, unmerited grace. Something that Jesus, as a Jew, probably should have been against. Jesus showed him grace as the God-man that he was and is those things that Zacchaeus was doing to help his community while good though, do not save him. His soul required more. He, he longed for salvation, such as only Jesus could give him. And the Lord knew this and he halted beneath that tree that day and invited himself as a guest to the publicans home. The one man in all of Jericho who needed the savior most was discovered by him and saved the grace of God is ever always in search of those who have gone as far as their light will carry them always that's where grace is that's the that's the nature of God we have a graceful God so then now that we kind of understand what a graceful God is in his nature I want to turn to Martin Luther And when speaking in, uh, Martin Luther was speaking in a Christmas Eve sermon. I believe the year was 1522. I looked through several of his works. Uh, This particular sermon, though, was just wow, phenomenal, Uh, one of the best readings that I've ever done. But in this Christmas Eve sermon in 1522, Martin Luther says, Could our works, apparel, Cloisters, fastings, and prayers render us godly, the Apostle Paul might more properly have said that a prayer or a fast, a pilgrimage, or an order or something else had appeared teaching us to be godly, but emphatically, it's none of these. It is the appearing of saving grace. This alone, nothing else, renders us godly. It is that unmerited grace that makes us just in the eyes of God. And how did that grace come to cover it all? The cross. So this idea of having a graceful God means that he's already met all prerequisites in order, to receive, in order for us to receive his gift in Christ. Because it isn't about earning his grace, because that's what Zacchaeus was trying to do. It isn't about earning his grace mm-hmm. because the law tried to accomplish that and failed miserably. It's about God having already paid that price to freely bestow that grace. Because if, yeah. it, if it Bob, reminds one,
0: me it reminds me of another story that Jesus told another parable that he told of, you know, the workers. Yeah. And they're the workers in the morning and the workers in the afternoon and the workers late in the day and they all got paid the same thing. And, and the parable doesn't make it clear that they all did the same exact amount of work because that wasn't the point. They really didn't. But it was unimportant to the master how much work they did when he decided how much to pay them
1: mm-hmm.
0: because they were all paid the same wage because the job was done.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know? And, and it's... It's like Paul is have trying to say that in this passage, you know, that, that it's not the stuff that we do. It's not the things that we do that are really important, that it's, it's God's grace that saves us because yeah. it doesn't matter how much or how little of it we necessarily need it. And it doesn't matter all the things that we do. It just matters that it exists.
1: Yeah. And you know, This this is something that I didn't add to it, but that brings up a quote from Martin Luther that I remember where he's talking about if anything that we could do as far as pilgrimages or whatever, if anything we could do could save us, then what is the reasoning for grace? Why do we need it? Mm-hmm. it, it if If we can get to heaven by... Going on pilgrimage or fasting and prayer alone, what's what's the use of Jesus coming and dying on a cross? Because, honest, it goes back to if one if by one man sin can enter the world, by one man all can be made justified. And Luther taught that instead of God's grace being dependent partly on human will or doing. You know, they would do indulgences, all these things back in his day, which he was explicitly against. And uh, there's some purgatory stuff in there that I can't wait till we come back to October that I'm going to throw in. But uh, he either way, he says, you know, it, it was not it's not dependent partly on human willing or doing God graciously wills and works all in all. It's the same idea that he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It's, it's because of his mercies that we are not consumed. Why? Because God is graceful in his nature. Even when he opened up the earth and swallowed up, was it the Kohathites? He swallowed up the Kohathites. Wow. Even when you know, he, he had Saul put in that position to be killed. God was graceful and you may not see it that way. You may not understand it that way, but God is graceful to, to who he wants to be graceful to. Yeah. It's
0: kind of like how we talked about during um, our last series or a couple ago now on creation, you know, in the garden they fell. And when you read that story, it really reads like God is just repeatedly asking them, like, just admit it and I can fix it. Like I, I I have to punish you at some point, but I'm not there yet. So let me fix it. And he does the same thing to Cain, you know, like Abel's dead and his blood is crying out from the ground and God comes to him and he asks them these questions. And he's just like, there's only two ways to answer this question. You either can like get an even worse attitude and make it worse, or you can admit what you did and we can fix it. But there's literally nothing else that can be done. And it's the same thing with grace. It feels like, you know, And, and I mean, and it is, it's that God just needs us to come to
1: him. And, you know, having a graceful God, going back to what you're saying about, you know, God eventually having to punish them, but he wasn't there yet. A graceful God doesn't give excuse to sin. You know, in that same Christmas Eve sermon, Martin Luther said grace was revealed and proclaimed to the very end that we might deny ungodliness thereafter and thereafter live righteously, not through or of ourselves, but through grace. So whenever Jesus encountered someone, whether he healed them or talked with them, what were often the parting words? Go and sin no more. It's that idea of turning the other cheek, being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. When we obtain the grace and mercy of Jesus, we are taking up our cross, which is to deny our flesh, live soberly and righteously before God. Luther goes on to say in the same paragraph of what I just read. No one more disparages divine grace and more gainsays says it, disappearing than do hypocrites and ungodly saints for unwilling to regard their own works ineffectual, sinful and faulty, They discover in themselves much good. God, however, regards no work good, nor is it, unless he by his grace affects it in us. It was for the sake of accomplishing in us all many such works. And of deterring us from our own attempts that that God manifested his saving grace to men. And yeah, breaking down that word ungodliness or ungodly, there's really no good word for it when you translate it from Hebrew to, or Aramaic to Greek or Latin, much less German. But the Hebrew word there is Risa for ungodly. Which means sin of failing to honor God. That is of not believing, trusting, and fearing him, not surrendering to him, not submitting to his providence, not allowing him to be God. It's so
0: amazing. I hear this definition and I'm just like how did we grow up in a church where ungodliness was defined as literal ungodliness? Like ungodliness was how you looked and how you acted and godliness was how you looked and the things you said and all of this stuff. And it was like all human action that made you godly or ungodly. And yet really the word is, 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 not acknowledging god for who he is is what that is which means that godliness is simply to acknowledge god as who he is and all this other stuff and and trust me i will never be the one to say that like the things the specific items by and large i mean there's a few things that just drove me crazy because they were just so obviously wrong but like most of them are good things. And even the things that weren't good were coming from a good place, but they were so missing what grace and what godliness really is. Because at the end of the day, the existence of grace tells us that nothing we do ultimately changes anything. We cannot be more or less godly by our actions.
1: Yeah. I mean, because uh, godliness comes from grace working through us, yeah. And uh, again, it goes back to you know how I grew up, how and even how you grew up to a degree, I guess. But you know, I keep going back to this this quote from Luther where it says unwilling to regard their own words, ineffectual, sinful, and faulty, they discover in themselves much good. And I'm, yeah, I've been there. I've, I've thought about all the things that I've done, you know, the th- things I didn't do, the things I did. And I was like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm I'm doing something great for me. But the issue is, is, is that we have often coined the term ungodly to mean worldly. And Luther actually says, he goes on to say, he's speaking of ungodliness here. He says, but much more deeply involved are the wise, the sainted, learned ecclesiasts, who relying upon their works think themselves godly and so appear in the eyes of the world. In fact, all men who do not live a life committed to the pure goodness and grace of God are impious, ungodly, even though they be holy enough to raise the dead, are perfect incontinence and virtues. Graceless and faithless would seem to be the proper adjective to describe them. When did Martin Luther become a 21st century Pentecostal? And That's the thing.
0: Because like, I mean, I feel like I feel like we could like walk into a whole bunch of churches and say this exact same thing. And and again, I'm not saying that they don't have lots of good points because they do. But like, man, that hits
1: hard. Absolutely, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's why I I chose this Christmas Eve sermon because there was so much in there about grace and faith, and what it really comes down to according to Luther, whether, whether you believe this or not, or yeah, that's fine. But this is, we're talking about what Luther said. According to Luther, it's about ungodliness is about people proclaiming to be godly. It's, it's about those who think themselves godly and appear that way in the eyes of the world. And my God, how much have we seen that? You know, you can wear a skirt. You can have your hair up in a bun. You can wear pants all all day and never wear shorts and keep your face clean shaven. But that doesn't matter. Uh, that doesn't matter if it's for the wrong reason. It's not. It doesn't matter if it's not grace making its work in you. Yeah. No. And that's where the shortcomings are because those things alone are just probably good practices, but this is where faith steps in, right? The things we do as Christians do not justify us. Great. You wear a skirt. Great. You have, you have long hair. Great. You keep your face clean shaven and don't wear shorts and you don't go to, you know, you, you, you don't drink, you don't do, you don't go to movie theaters. Great. Good job. Proud of you. But you're not justified by any of that because nothing that you do can ever justify you. Big old giant golf (laughs) clap. We are justified through faith, according to Romans 5. And that's why any work that we do that is wrought outside the grace of God is ineffectual and unfruitful. It's that concept of, though I speak with tongues of men and have not an end of angels... And I have not love, I am as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. It's that same idea. You know, I had a student in class, I think it was last week uh, at our church, not at, not at school, to be clear. I'm, I'm the middle school teacher as well at our church. And this boy, he could tell that he had never really been churched, if, if that's even a word or an adjective to describe someone. I mean, it is to anybody who's in
0: church who goes to church regularly, I'm sure, but anybody yeah, else yeah. would probably be like that, That's not
1: a word. <laughs> yeah. So he told me though, he's like, well, the way you get to heaven is through doing the right things and being good. And I was like, mm, no, no, That The only way that ever works is if you have grace working in you, if you have Jesus working in you, if you have repented and been baptized and you've received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Man, just hearing
0: that, though, like in my head, I'm just hearing every sermon I've ever heard. And even ones I've said where I'm just like, if you want to be saved, you have to, you know, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. Right. And and I'm just like, that's not accurate. It's not about it, me. But for, for, but beyond that, I also see how people get to the opposite extreme where they're just like, all you gotta do is accept the Lord as your personal savior. Yeah. And then you get to go to heaven forever, no matter what you do. The, and it's yeah. like I I I see like the tug in each direction because like they both can fit. So many aspects of what is said. Exactly. You know, and it's like in the end, neither of them work without the other, because one of them makes a God who, although he is all powerful and almighty and all knowing is clearly weak and pathetic and overrun by these creations that are nothing in comparison to him constantly. Right. I mean, let's be real here. If, if all it goes is going, Jesus, I accept you and you're automatically good forever. No matter what you do, God is, God is a ridiculous pushover and we are a bunch of spoiled rotten babies. Absolutely. You you know, I mean, I just think about like, if for the next three months, every time my, one of my kids is like, you know every time one of my kids gives me a look and and let me tell you my kids can give some cute looks okay i have a 3 and a 6 year old girl girls and and they got the adorable okay but if every time they gave me that look i just all of a sudden went okay honey it's okay never mind you're not in trouble at all it's all good they're going to be awful. Yeah. And I have no I would have no authority in their lives at all. Yeah. And yet that's how so many teach that God is. But on the other extreme, we have so many who want to who they don't want to but they by what they say they take the power of what these things do and they remove it out of the hands of God and his grace and they put it in our actions as if our actions matter
1: yeah and you know that that old adage of or it's not even an old adage it's scripture (laughs) you show me your faith i show you my works and i'll show you my faith by my works again that work is grace working in you yeah it's that faith working in you. It's It's not about what you're doing. It's about where the work comes from. You know, repentance is ineffectual and no good if you're not actually repenting, if you're just saying words. Baptism is ineffectual if you're not going to repent. You're just getting wet. You know, speaking in tongues, I've heard people speak in tongues that are now atheists. It. It literally, none of that will matter if, if you do not allow grace to work in you. You know that, and and let's go on, but our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. Quote Isaiah. And, you know, we, we are justified through faith in the atoning sacrifice And resurrection of Christ. Then grace begins to work in us to repent and be baptized and and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Luther says, Paul tells us that saving grace has appeared to the graceless to make them rich in grace and rich in God. In other words, to bring them to believe, trust, fear, honor, love, and praise him, and thus transform ungodliness into godliness. Having that having that, that grace work in you is literally changing you from ungodly out of the will of God, out of the subjection to God, to putting you into subjection to God and believing and trusting in who he is. To have faith is to trust in God, to have complete and perfect confidence that he will be gracious to us. Filling us with grace and godliness, And if you do not believe that Jesus is the son of God, you will die in your sins. It's, it's that perishing that Jesus came to save us from by, by going to the cross and rising again. It's, be, it, it's through this faith that our faith produces works of righteousness. And for that, I, I just immediately go to Hebrews chapter 11 because that's filled with, with faith and work. And I want to start off with Hebrews 11 and five says by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and was, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Noah being warned of God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. You skip on down to verse 13. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar off Go on to verse 22, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth, than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured us, seeing him who as who is invisible. By faith he kept the passover and sprinkled blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith. The people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with all, with those who were disobedient. You see in a, you're see, you seeing a, a constant recurrence of, by faith, they did this. By faith, they did this. And he goes on to say, For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mausolians, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens of the in caves of the earth, and all of these, through though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. If you do, if you aren't believing in, in God and you're trying to do this your way, you are literally disrespecting and denying. The faith of millions of others who have died for it you know what i love about that passage too
0: it doesn't just make it so clear that faith is an action that faith requires our our acceptance of that step where we don't necessarily know where our foot's going right yeah it utterly annihilates any sort of prosperity gospel absolutely because how in the world can you preach prosperity gospel? How can you say, like, the Lord's will is for you to be a rich person if you just give me all your money right now as a seed offering or any nonsense like that? And then be like, oh, yeah, by the way, the the disciples were sewn in half, ripped into, filleted alive, crucified, crucified upside down, beheaded, you know, attempted to be killed multiple times until they just got sent to a deserted island because they couldn't kill him, etc., etc., etc. Like, So you're telling me my faith by handing you a check is greater than Peter and Paul's faith? Because they sure didn't prosper. Those dudes died
1: brutally. It's a complete disrespect. It's a complete disrespect. And (laughs) again... That's why I, I personally believe, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. I believe Martin Luther got it right on this. Yeah. I think that he was wrong in some other ways. Yeah. I disagree with some of the things he said, but on this, he's certainly right.
0: I mean, and, and we'll get to this because I know we we hit, we do have plans. Spoiler alert, guys. We have plans to talk about some other um, quote unquote church fathers and stuff. It's it's, it's really interesting stuff and, and I really want to get into it. But I think one of the things we have to remember when we're talking about these people is we have to judge them fairly based on what they knew and when they lived. Yeah. It is not showing any kind of grace to go, Oh yeah, Martin Luther. Well, guess what? My 21st century understanding of the Bible that gets to use a bunch of like, you know, Google tools and I get to cross reference everything. I see things that you missed well of course you do you have 500 years of scholarship that was literally impossible when he was doing this stuff honestly and and not only that you're not living in a world where i mean let's be real here one of the big things martin luther did was he pushed for he was he was part of what pushed for people to be able to read the bible He was one of the many who did push for that on some level.
1: And you know that Martin Luther for all of his issues though at the end of the day got this right. And honestly when it comes to grace none of us deserve it. And having faith that we we don't deserve it knowing we don't deserve it and having faith that Jesus came and took care of it and by that faith we walk you know Hebrews chapter 11 I believe I believe it's chapter 11 starts out faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen yeah faith is the understanding that i don't know where i'm going i don't know why god is leading me this way but i'm gonna go that's faith let's show me your words i'll show you my faith and i'll show you my faith by my words i love that passage um i really do like it's such a great
0: it's such a great word picture the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen like what is evidence if not seeing something? And yet he's saying, faith is the evidence of that thing that you have no evidence of. Yeah, you You know, and and it just, it shows the power in faith. And I mean, you know, just looking in the modern world, we can see the power of the idea of faith in good and bad things so easily. Mm -hmm. You know, believing in the wrong thing blindly brings you down some crazy, horrible paths. But we know that when we put all of that faith and all of that trust in a God that loves us and a God that loves all of us enough to die on a cross for us, not because of an act that is somehow necessary, but just to get us to understand and accept that grace and that love Yeah, you know when we put all of that blind faith when we put all of that trust in that God it can do amazing things
1: yeah and you know that's a great place to end it Uh, guys go out there and use your faith amen